Today, your job as a deputy district attorney is to prove that a police officer killed an innocent victim 23 years ago and got away with it. The team behind you worked for months in order to get some solid physical evidence. So you know you have a strong case and you also have a motive. It makes for a concise, straight-to-the-point opening statement. A bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus murdered Sherry Rasmussen. Just, uh, Stephania. Here's a grip. Here's a grip, okay? Here's a grip. Just, just get it. Get it. Just, just get it for the love of God, no? She's not, she's not getting it, is she? She's, uh, she's not getting it. So, let me explain a bit of this uh, situation here. I actually watched a tutorial on a messy bun, that is, and then I gave up halfway through it because I found it too hard. <sighs> you see, when you hear the story that I tell you, and then at the end of the video, I politely ask you if you liked my storytelling to like and subscribe to my channel. I do it for a reason. If I don't monetize on this soon, I'm doomed. Th these are my skills. These are my... This is the level that I can get to. I give up during a messy bun tutorial. I have zero skills, so that is the situation of the day. On that note, there's a couple of you in my comment section that understood the assignment. I didn't even have to give the assignment. You simply watch the video, you get the vibe, you get the energy, and you understand it. And you are my hype people. I'm just gonna highlight a couple of you on the screen because you just make it such a wonderful experience. I was literally just about to sit down and record when a couple of nice, positive, energetic comments flew in. And I was like, yes, this is why I do this. This is who I do it for. And you don't understand how much it means to somebody who is a small creator, how much more probably than somebody who has like millions of subscribers. And it's so nice because I'm usually the hype girl at the job that I dislike myself within customer service. And then when you see somebody hyping you up at something that you love and enjoy doing, it just like, gives you such a manic energy to continue doing that and to just improve, improve, improve. On that note, on to the topic of the day, Maya is the name and Gone Bad is the game. Gone Bad is the series that I do on this channel where I talk about people that were ordinary, living their normal, boring lives, kind of like you and me, until one day they decided to switch to crime. <laughs> you just say that other people watching this are leading boring lives. How, how are you still here? In this story, they switched to crime and then got away with it for about 23 years as well. So, you know, sometimes there's additional bits to it. And there are about two reasons why I have not covered this case before. The first one is that it's a lot more famous than the ones that I usually cover. It's kind of been, you know, chewed up, spit out by so many people. So I wondered going into it, like, what can I add to it? And the second reason, and this one, listen, you cannot unsee it once you hear it, so maybe just skip to the next timestamp if you are not ready not to be able to unsee it. Well, you understand that I edit my own videos, right? Because it's very obvious, it's kind of like, you know, a kid 
taking scissors to his year one and doing an art project. That's how they look like. You're here for the story, not for the editing. And I thank you for that very much so. How do I put this? I don't have much in common with the perp of the day except for the amount of facial expressions that we make. Ever since I watched her police interrogation, probably a couple of years ago, to be honest, and since I started editing my own videos every single time I edit them, it haunts me. I just, we just both have really expressive faces. It's just the fact that she lies constantly and I just use the expressions to tell the story and because it's my face, so I can't really change it. That part. Now get ready for me to put her interrogation clips here and for you never to be able to unsee it. You see, I told you to skip to the next timestamp. I told you. Now that I have taken out all of my PMS rage onto you guys, the story of Sherry Rasmussen and Stephanie Lazarus. Diving. Diving in mode. Diving in mode. We are gonna start our story on February the 24th, 1986. John Rutten was just coming home from work like any other day. His wife, Sherry, though, didn't go to work that day. She was a 29-year-old nurse, but that day she called in sick because she had this injury from the aerobics class. She kind of, like, pulled her back, so she just really wanted to stay in bed for the day. As John is parking up into their garage, he notices that the white BMW that he got Sherry as the engagement gift isn't parked up, and he just finds that odd. But maybe she has gone shopping, maybe she felt better in the afternoon and has gone out to do some errands. He doesn't panic, he rather just enters the house through the garage door. This townhouse that Sherry and John lived in had three levels. So there was a living room at the bottom floor, and then kitchen and dining room sort of like on the first floor, and then two bedrooms on the third level. So as John enters the living room, he finds it ransacked. The broken porcelain vase is all over the floor. The TV wall unit is now collapsed on the floor. And the drawers have been kind of yanked out of the usual place. And the contents of it have been dumped on the floor. But it's truly when he sees the trail of blood that he realizes Sherry is on the floor too. The rigor mortis has already set in, meaning that she must have at least been dead for a couple of hours. John here calls 911 straight away, and a couple of LAPD officers show up, including the lead homicide detective, Lyle Mayer. So Mayer and the other detectives start examining the scene. And the stereo equipment that was sort of by the TV, well, it seems as if somebody took it and then attempted to run with it towards the garage door, as if that was their escape route, but then has just left it stacked there. One of the speakers was knocked over and was just next to Sherry's head on the rug. In Sherry's vicinity, there was also a vase that seemed to be just shattered on the floor. And then they find at the base of the stairs, as if leading from the living room onto the second level, again, a CD player stacked onto VCR, as if they were stacked to be carried out, but then kind of just forgotten about and left behind there at the bottom of the stairs. There was a single bloody smudge on top of that CD player, and also there were some smears of blood on the wall and on the front door. 
There was also this table in the living room and again the contents of whatever was on the table and inside of the drawers were just emptied out. So at the first glance it seemed like whoever the intruder was was desperately looking for something. The theory that Mayer and other detectives came up with it was that this was an interrupted burglary, right? One or a couple of burglars came in to attack Sherry. Sherry was still in her bathrobe and in slippers so it seems like they didn't come announced and that they also walked in somehow because the alarm wasn't triggered either. So maybe John forgot to put the alarm on. There was no forced entry and it didn't seem like she was expected visitors. So their theory was that somebody managed to get into the house, sort of like attempted to stack whatever they wanted to take away, and then Sherry probably came downstairs, interrupted them, a struggle ensued within which Sherry ended up dead, and then this person probably freaked the hell out and didn't actually take anything except they drove in Sherry's car. The evidence to support this would be the blood that dripped onto that CD player and the VCR. So it kind of seemed like the struggle ensued, Sherry was killed, and then they sort of like maybe wanted to lift that VCR and CD player to take it out, but decided maybe somebody has heard them and they should flee the scene immediately. At the first listen to this, certain things do fit in a potential burglary. And this is where you kind of have to listen to the rest of the story and the actual evidence supporting the murder and that this burglary did not exist. And I feel like Mayer and other detectives have just ignored the rest of that and have just stuck to this. This first couple of minutes that I'm telling you, it just seems like they have arrived to this scene and have formed a theory and they have tried to fit every single piece into that theory instead of it being the other way around and making the theory based on the evidence that they have seen on the scene of the crime. So let's talk about Sherry. First of all, I told you Rigo Mortis already set in, which means that this probably happened within the morning hours, right as John left for work, which means somebody else didn't go to work. That is one point that will never be exploited. We'll talk about it in depth later. And also what it meant is that they knew the schedule of the family. If they knew the family, maybe they knew the alarm code. Maybe they knew their schedule. Maybe they knew one or the other member and they knew only their part of the schedule and when they will be outside, even if we are thinking robbery. Maybe they didn't expect Sherry to be in there and they thought this was gonna be an easy way out. Both of them are out of the house, usually working. They didn't expect her to call in sick. What I'm driving at is that there are different theories to explain the fact that there was no forced entry into the house. If we are thinking that it is somebody that might have known their schedule, might have been close to them, might have just known when they will be out. Then the second theory to support that this was all a burglary was the whole ransacking of the house. If we break that down, Yes, it did look like somebody was interrupted. Yes, it did look like, you know, there was blood on the CD player, the VCR, like it was stacked as if somebody was to have taken it out. But if the plan was to get into Sherry's car and skedaddle out of there, why not proceed with that? Like DNA still wasn't a big thing. Why not take what you came for? Like if the plan was to just get out of there, 
why not actually take any of the valuables? What was taken from the scene was John and Sherry's marriage license. Not just that, but because John and Sherry have only been married for three months, this marriage license was still kept in Sherry's purse. So, whoever took this marriage license that was super important to them, apparently, during this robbery, didn't go for the rest of, like, the cash that was within that same purse. So, at least, you know, that would be some easy loot, some easy cash to just get off the scene, because it's exactly in the same place where this marriage license is. Why not just take it if this is a burglary in the end? So, that was worth a risk, but then all of the other valuables actually weren't worth the risk. And that didn't raise up any red flags towards this being personal as hell to anybody. Also, what didn't raise any red flags to this being personal, and not just personal, but a staged robbery, a staged burglary, was how things were ransacked and random. Upstairs, nothing was out of place except that the glass was shattered. So, it seems like somebody shattered the glass for it to fall down, so that maybe when John was to come home, he would see the glass first, which he did. That is how he kind of freaked out that something actually was wrong inside the house. So, it seemed like that part was stage to begin with, maybe to announce to somebody that a burglary happened, which, again, why would you do that? This glass would have fallen onto the pavement just in front of the garage, which means that other neighbors would be able to see it. So, that doesn't fit into the plot of somebody ransacking the house and then also trying to get out as soon as possible after they murdered Sherry. And if we are talking about the rest of ransacking, I'm sorry that I'm focusing on this. It's just that nobody did, and it's so dumb. It's so dumb how they concluded that this was a robbery. I just... It's beyond me. I know it was 80s, but it is beyond me. It just seemed like whoever this attacker was, was plugging things out. So, you're like, okay, cool, but that supports a robbery. They want to take the whole of the stereo equipment of the TV, Maya. Yeah. But they seem to have been either stacking things manically with no reason to be taken away and then leaving television behind, leaving the speakers behind, or they would plug out the cables out of the speaker and then those would be found in front of the front door from the inside. So, like some intertwined cords and the cable that was connected to the speaker. So, are they just going out with uh, cables as they loot from the scene. Just make it make sense. Make this make sense as a robbery. Here, while still on the scene, John will end up calling his dad to come from San Diego, telling him that Sherry was murdered. But what he didn't do was call Sherry's parents. Nor did the police for that freaking matter. I just don't understand. The 80s were a different freaking time. So, not until 2 a.m., eight hours, later that Rasmussen's were actually notified. And not by John, but by John's dad. Now, Sherry's body goes to autopsy. And boy, if something did not support the theory of the burglary, that was this pathologist's report. The pathologist would declare the cause of death to be three gunshot wounds to her chest. Sherry also had bruises all over. There were signs that she had struggled with the assailant, different contusions, different lacerations on her, on her hands, mouth, face, head, and neck. And especially in the eye area, as if she was really struggling to fight this person off, 
before the shots happened. There was an injury to her face that was consistent with a blow from the muzzle of the gun, and then there was another blow to the head that was consistent to that broken vase that was found next to her. But two most important pieces of evidence on Sherry's own body that would speak a whole different story would be the last bullet that entered her body, because it seemed as if it entered with some fibers from a rope, as if somebody was using a rope to muffle the sounds of the gun. And the second piece of evidence that they could actually obtain some DNA from would be a bite mark on her left forearm, as if during that struggle she had this person, this intruder, in a chokehold, and the only way that they could get out of that chokehold was to bite as hard as they could into her arm. And a swab of death DNA would be sampled for future DNA testing, because DNA still wasn't a thing, and also a cast of tooth would be taken for, again, possible tooth comparison sometime in the future. Outside of the autopsy room, the police investigation continues, and they managed to discard John fairly quickly. He retraced all of the steps for the police that day, they spoke with his workplace, he had an airtight alibi, so they knew that it wasn't John. They interviewed Nels and Loretta, Sherry's parents, they interviewed the neighbors, they interviewed the friends, but they wouldn't get their next clue until a week after the murder. And the next clue was that Sherry's silver BMW has been found, just abandoned on the road with the keys in the ignition. They found a drop of blood in there and they found a streak of brown hair. They found also some fingerprints in the car, but I believe those were later connected to Sherry, because it would also only be the DNA that would be left to be tested at some point in the future, once, you know, DNA is established and people can actually use everything that they have gathered from this crime scene. But now it was official. The only loot this supposed burglar turned murderer has actually taken was a marriage license, because they found a car, so they didn't even steal that car in the end. The second clue in this investigation popped up when, two weeks after Sherry's murder, a couple of blocks from her house, two Latino men robbed this woman's house, and again, they probably expected that she wouldn't be there, so they assaulted her as well. But they didn't kill her. However, for the LAPD, they now had a story, and they will stick with it. Before we pick up the pieces of this investigation, let's go back in time and speak about Sherry. Sherry was from LA. She was one of the three sisters in a really close-knit family. From my research, Rasmussen is a Danish name, and again, I base this off her father's full name, so I believe her father, and like from that side of the family, she is at least half Scandinavian, half Danish. At the age of 16, she entered Loma Linda University, and she lectured internationally on critical care nursing. So, by the age of 20, she was already a nurse. And when she met John, at the age of 27, she was about to join Glendale Medical Center. 
The two of them were set up on a date by a mutual friend. And immediately as she met John, she saw the best in him. She saw that he was talkative, charming. He was also laid back, which kind of was compatible to who she was. He majored in engineering and she immediately felt attracted to him. And it just seemed like they were poised to succeed together. Both of them were also lean, athletic, runners, and John was also the recent graduate at UCLA. It just seemed like both of them were on the right career paths. And from John's perspective, she was gorgeous, and he also considered her brilliant. She was confident, she was directed, and she was who John wanted to be. Or rather, who he saw himself as in his best moments in life. So it just seemed like she brought out the best in John. What the book on this case by Paul Alexander explained, it just seems like they married. Then they were together, and then they got married. So they got married only eight months into dating, and she retained her maiden name. What breaks me in this story is that Sherry's parents, Nels and Loretta, raised Sherry to be independent, to be this independent young lady who didn't need a man even when she wanted one, who had her own career, had her own life, and then somebody just complimented it. And the person that killed her will be anything, anything but that. The two of them got married in November 85, so this was still a honeymoon period. They have just been living together as a married couple for three months. John was working at the engineering company, and when he left their townhouse in Van Nuys for work that day, Sherry was still in bed. She had that back sprain from the injury from her aerobics class, but also she was supposed to supervise this HR class for some of her nursing charges that morning, and she didn't feel like doing it. It was mandatory. So she was like, listen, there's two things that are just colliding here. Like, I'm just gonna call in sick. John advised her actually to go in and to just get this class over with. And he said that she was still undecided when he walked out of the door about 7.20. And in hindsight, there were a couple of red flags. Like, John did try to call her multiple times that day. First thing, he kind of didn't want to call her right as he made it into the office because he thought, like, okay, maybe she's having a sleepy and maybe she decided not to go in. But then later, he called her kind of mid-morning and she wasn't picking up. So he called her office. But then the secretary there said if she is actually in this HR meeting, she won't come by the office the whole day. So this isn't really the place where you will get her. But I haven't seen her either. So maybe she just isn't here. And then he rang the house a couple of more times. And what he noticed was that the answering machine wasn't on. But then he also knew that Sherry would sometimes forget to switch it on. So there were really no alarm bells ringing in his head as he was sitting at work. What John didn't know was that Sherry stayed behind. She stayed at the top level in the bedroom all the way up until noon, when she decided to go to one of the bottom levels to the kitchen to make herself some lunch. And this is when, as she entered the kitchen, she saw a person that she only saw a couple of times in her life. And in the moment as she's trying to wrap her head around this, this intruder lifts a gun. 
Sherry in that moment decides to slam against her body, so sort of like try to tackle this intruder and to get the gun out of her hands. But unfortunately the bullet hits her immediately, so that's that first shot. She manages to fend off this intruder and to run downstairs. She is running towards the front door because she knows there's a panic button on the outside of this front door, if she could only reach it. And this is when a maid in the adjacent townhouse hears a scream, but she doesn't make anything out of it. This was Sherry screaming because this intruder tripped her over. As I mentioned, Sherry was lean. She was athletic. She got up of that floor and tried to now move in a different direction. But this is when the attacker tackled her by the throat and she was on the ground again. And this is when Sherry managed to basically turn her around, put her into that chokehold, but the attacker was biting so hard into her left forearm that she had to let go. And the attacker at that moment finds that porcelain vase and basically smacks Sherry on the head and she blacks out. This is when the attacker starts moving around the house and you're like, what are they doing? Are they stacking up, you know, all of these things to stage this burglary? No. They're looking for a robe. And when they find that bathrobe, they go back to Sherry downstairs. She was still blacked out on the floor. And they just point through the bathrobe in order to muffle the sounds, point blank at Sherry's heart and shoot one final shot. They then decide to stage the whole house to look as if it was a burglary, take her marriage license and flee the scene. Even returning home, John still wasn't particularly concerned. He finished his work early and on his way home, he stopped by the dry cleaners to pick up some freshly laundered clothes, by the UPS store, and it was only when he pulled up to the garage behind their home that he was surprised to see that the door was drawn up. The garage was based in the back alley. That's why he saw, A, the Sherry's BMW was gone, but also the shards of the broken glass on the pavement on the garage entrance. And it wasn't until he would open the inner door to the living room ajar that he would get alarmed. John finds Sherry on the living room floor, and this is when the investigation begins. So let's pick up from where this investigation was at this point. And let's pick back up from that phone call that John's dad made to Nels, to Sherry's dad. Well, in Nels's mind, that phone call just kind of assured him that the opinion that he first had of his son-in-law, John, was correct. You see, Nels always found John to be weak, weakling compared to his daughter. Nels was a dentist, he was proud, he was conservative, he was opinionated, but he was successful and capable, and he managed his practice with his wife Loretta. Both of them were proud of their talented daughter Sherry, and they were kind of not thrilled with her choice of who she's going to marry. They found him pleasant, they didn't object to this marriage, but they just thought he was unimpressive, sort of not worthy of Sherry. And well, the fact that 
John's dad called him and not John, and that his dad wouldn't pass the phone to John to speak about what condition his daughter has been found in, what the hell has happened, kind of just enforced with Nels that his hostility towards John was probably justified. So, as soon as they hear the news, Loretta and John go down to LA, and they go to speak with Mayer. And immediately, literally two minutes into the conversation with the lead detective, Nell says, you need to look into John's lady friend. She's a cop. Nels goes on to tell the police a couple of situations in which this lady cop, whose name he didn't know, would make Sherry feel really uncomfortable. There was this one time that this lady cop just appeared at her front door when she was leaving with John, just before the two of them got married. She appeared unannounced and just gave John these water skis for him to wax. And she kind of just, like, wouldn't leave. It wasn't this handover. And both Nels and probably you and me think that this was just an excuse. Just for her to make them rout. To start up this argument. Because this was very random. And it wasn't about water skis. So, of course, as soon as this handover was done and John went into the house, Sherry did start up an argument. She was like, who is this woman? Like, she has never appeared here before. And John explained that the two of them shared a dorm before. And then they were kind of lovers. <laughs> Sorry, didn't tell you that, honey. But yeah, the two of us were kind of sleeping together. There was never anything serious. We kind of went water skiing together a couple of times as well. So yeah, I'm just gonna wax these skis for her and she won't bother us any longer. And Sherry's there like, could have maybe told me that before. And she kind of told him like, don't wax the skis, like don't entertain this. Like let her freaking leave and tell her not to come here ever again. But John didn't do that. So John waxes these skis and sure as hell, she turns up to collect them unannounced again. And early in the morning, she said the lady cop that she was on her break. But she also entered her kitchen somehow, yet again. And Sherry was very suspicious. This was only a few weeks before the wedding, but she just thought, what in the actual hell? Because Sherry used to always go out first. She would leave for work first to go to that nursing home, and then John would leave soon after. So she started thinking, wait, is this a routine? Does she have keys to my house? Like, is this what happens? Like, I leave for work, and then he's lady cup friend appears. So Sherry just like hands her over the skis and kind of is like, yeah, time for you to go and never come back again. And this lady cup, well, she was dressed in a police uniform with a gun in her holster. So she said, what are you going to do? Are you going to call the police? Because I'm the police. So I'm already on the scene, apparently, you know, should I take your report? And Sherry was just like, this needs to stop. As I said, the wedding was only a few weeks away, so this is when she spoke to her father, and she told him about these things. She was like, I trust him, I just want him to step up and tell this woman to leave us alone. Like, who the hell is she to think that she can just intrude into our house? 
And she would tell Nels, she would tell her father that John would always assure her that there's nothing going on between the two of them and just to ignore her because ignoring her would make her go away. Yeah, because every time you are having this friendship with your crazy ex-girlfriend, yeah, just tell everybody, just ignore her, she will go away. Did that ever work for you? in the first place. How can you give this advice to others when this didn't work for you in the first instance, John? The third instance that Nels will mention to the police officers, to Mayer, was this time when this lady cop actually appeared on Sherry's place of work. This all happened just a few weeks before the two of them got married. The lady cop appeared at her place of work in the uniform, imposing power, of course, and she told Sherry, if I can't have him, nobody else will. As Nels is telling them about all of these instances in which this lady cop just acted like all crazy, this cop tells him, you really should stop watching that much TV. Incensed. Incensed. Sweaty and incensed. That's what I freaking am at this statement. Stop watching TV. No. <laughs> so Nels, here was also really kind of like everybody watching, really doubting the competence of these police officers. So he started poking holes at their burglary theory. You see, soon after the murder, Nels was shown sketches of these two Latino male suspects, and the burglary theory was explained to him. So, first of all, there's no way for anybody to recognize any of those two people from those drawings, so at least nobody was falsely imprisoned here. But what this meant for this case was that this scenario just further didn't make any sense. Because when Nels first spoke with Mayer, Mayer actually told him, in his theory that he established within the first five minutes of looking at that scene, that the fight between Sherry and the intruder lasted for over an hour and a half. So the Scandinavian king over here, Nels, yeah, he quite like me, likes to visualize this thing. So he's like, okay, so two intruders, right? Two Latino men. Two intruders that she sees as she enters this place. Walk me through it. How is she doing it? So one of them bit her arm, right? The same person smashes the vase on her head. What is the other person doing? Are they just chilling? Like, they're just, you know, sitting there, maybe, like, rummaging, taking cables, putting cables next to the front door. What is the other person doing? There was a moment here when another detective said, hey, actually, it might be a woman. We we never discarded these were two Latino men. What if one was a man, one was a woman? Women are biters. But this was dismissed soon because during fighting, you know, WWE, UFC, I don't know, I'm saying abbreviations. During fighting, men, men are known to bite as well. No, I, they, they, like, there was not a single brain combined out of all of these brains. No, they just did not exist. <laughs> the brains were not there. After this initial conversation, Nels, of course, wanted to check up if they have investigated this lady cop, if they have just conducted an interview with her, checked her alibi, maybe. The answer was no, because nobody really ever checked up on the lady cop. 
either Mayer or another detective who was one of the leads on the case, Hooks, apparently had a phone call with this lady cop eventually, and they just made like a brief entry on the file that read, John Rutten called, verified Stephanie Lazarus, PO, police officer, was former girlfriend. And that was about it. They cleared both John and Stephanie. Now, Nels never gave up. After months of case just going cold, both Loretta and him began holding press conferences, asking for people to come forward with clues, and they even conjured up $10,000 to offer as a reward. The Rasmussens also cooperated with the producers of the TV show Murder One and developed a segment about the unsolved case of their daughter. And every single year, he would call LAPD and be like, hey, any updates on this case? What about the lady cup? What about the DNA? And when he called about the DNA, well, they actually told him that the department had limited budget and they could not afford to run such tests. So he offers to pay for the tests himself. And he even said himself, I have a lab. Just give me the DNA. I can give it to the lab to do this work. And also, I kind of have a suspect as well. If you want to maybe, like, investigate into somebody, yeah, I have a person. But the police just never saw them analyzing DNA to be worth it, because it wouldn't be worth it without a suspect. Please make it make sense. Make it, like, I'm so incensed with this case. I knew the ins and outs of it. And still, when I research it, incensed. Sweaty and incensed. Make it make sense. On October the 11th, 1993, more than seven years after the murder and not long after Nels requested for that DNA test, somebody signed out all of the forensic samples that might have contained the suspect's DNA. Now, it's not unusual for a detective to remove evidence and deliver it for testing to the lab, but what is unusual is that this evidence disappeared. So, for 18 years, Sherry's file and what was left of this evidence from the scene of her murder will just be sitting in storage. Maya retired, thank fuck. But you know who didn't? You know who didn't retire on her idea of love and successful relationship with her boy John? Stephanie, yeah, of the, of the Lazaruses, the lady cop. Yeah, because in 1989, so what is that? Three years, three years after Sherry's death, yeah, that is, uh, they two of them reunited in Hawaii for a little scuba diving trip with the side of sexual intercourse. And before the two of them went for this scuba diving adventure, it's probably more about that second part that I mentioned, well, John actually called Mayer, who hasn't retired yet. He called the police office and he asked, was Stephanie ever a suspect? And they told him that she wasn't. Why did you have to ask? You know, if you completely believe that she's mentally stable, why'd you have to ask? Also, Mayer and the rest of the police force, whoever spoke with him, well, uh, they never really noted down these conversations. It was never, like, on the file, because they kind of stored that file and lost it somewhere. A couple of years after this trip, John would end up remarrying and starting family with another woman, and Stephanie would also marry a fellow cop. Luckily for this case, and I am definitely saying that with a bit of freaking irony, because this case could have been solved within that first freaking week, in 2001, LA crimes were at their lowest, and a cold case unit has finally been introduced. 
So there was this guy called Bernard Parks, who was the LA police chief at the time, and he finally started actually combing through all of these unsolved cases and looking for DNA evidence, because now DNA was definitely a thing, they could process them fairly quickly, so he was just looking for everything that was untested. Three years after that, so in 2004, a bad bitch enters the scene. Listen, do not mess with Jennifer Francis. Also, this article that I read had like some badass pictures of all of these people, so I'm just gonna present Jennifer Francis here on the screen. She was a criminalist with that unit, the cold case unit, and she pulled Sherry's case and started sort of sorting through what was there. And this action of going through what is there was routine, but what happened next really isn't. But let's backtrack here, because what was sort of the public consensus of LAPD at this time? And maybe just to explain why this case hasn't been solved for 23 years. Yeah, maybe just that. So, LAPD was, uh, how do I put this nicely? Corrupt as fuck. Just in the year that Sherry was killed, 1986, two cops from the LAPD unit were arrested for soliciting murder themselves. On top of that, the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, CRASH, was opened up as a specialized unit of the LAPD, and they were tasked with combating gang-related crimes. Now, CRASH did a bit of a left turn here, a bit of 180, and they started engaging in gang activity themselves. The prominent name here was a guy by name Rafael Perez, who robbed gang leaders, who would sell drugs himself, and committed also various other crimes, gang-related and not. Quite literally every form of cover-up that you can imagine would happen at this department. Beating of Rodney King for driving drunk, for example, purely, again, because of the race issues. Now, again, I'm not from LA. I don't know units as much and, like, whether this was all the same precinct. But even when you think about any single famous true crime case from Joseph D'Angelo, who was also a police officer turned serial killer, Menendez brothers weren't police officers, but again, one of them had to fess up for them to actually look at them as prime suspects. Richard Ramirez, like, all of the people that operated within the 70s, 80s, quite literally the police would always either neglect to look at the most obvious suspect or, well, they would never see somebody being one of them also capable of committing a crime. Or rather, there was more of a bias. They actually even had a term for it. And the term they would use is either big blue ball or a thin blue line. And this would mean that one cop cannot rat out another cop. We are now back with our bad bitch, Jennifer Francis. So, she knew how the evidence process worked, right? You collect it from the victim, you put it in this coroner's freezer for some time until the case is still active, and then if it goes to cold case unit, if there's not enough evidence, then it's either moved to a different freezer or it remains in the same one, but it's stored under a file number. But if you remember right, this sample should have been sent to the lab for testing. So, she starts thinking, okay, but what if somebody did note down that they have put it up for testing, but they never did? What if it's still in one of these freezers? So, this bad bitch actually goes and searches all of these freezers in the coroner's office or wherever by hand. 
And just so it happens that in this freezer, at the bottom of it, she sees in like really worn out handwriting the last name Rasmussen. And as she takes this envelope out, she sees that the tube contains two swabs and that this sample has been sitting in this freezer for the past 18 years. Jennifer gets the results to this DNA test in January 2005. She runs them for CODIS, but there were no hits, so this person has never had a criminal record before. But interestingly, one thing that popped up was that the suspect was a woman. So now Jennifer goes to her supervisor, right? And she says, well, this kind of defies your burglary theory. Was there ever anybody that you looked into as a suspect? And this supervisor kind of just brushes it off, saying like, oh yeah, there was this previous girlfriend that is also the LAPD detective, but she is not any part of this. So he just tells Jennifer they should stick to the burglary conclusion, and no other detective would pursue the case, so the evidence just went back into the case file. That was until four years later, in 2009. Now, more and more police officers wanted an in on this cold case, on this unit. And the reason behind that was that now, with DNA evidence, those cases would kind of promise them high clearance rates. They would look really good. So, two of those detectives were Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba. These two guys are looking into what they have, so they're looking into what they call the progress report. They see that they have this DNA evidence, it's from a female. And then they discover that small note that Mayer just dotted down when he spoke over the phone with John Rutten. Do you remember what the note said? Yeah, John Rutten identified Stephanie Lazarus, P.O., as his previous girlfriend. And they're like, P.O.? <laughs> P.O., not like post office, P.O. as in police freaking officer. Okay, so if, let's say, we were to consider Stefan Lazarus a police officer, first of all, we need to be super careful about going about this, because Jennifer Francis has already gotten into trouble for even bringing her up. So, A, we have to discard her. We need to check if the DNA will match the DNA sample that we have. But second, let's just run, let's just run through this. Let's see what story reads better. Jim, Pete, we speak the same language. So they were like, okay, how would a police officer go about this? She wouldn't be doing it when she was on duty. It would be on her day off. Was Stephanie Lazarus working on that day? Oh, no, it suddenly seems like she had it off. She would know their schedule and she would be waiting for the victim to be alone. Just in this case, it so happens that she did know John's schedule pretty well. She would be entering and leaving the scene in such a way that would minimize her being seen, being exposed. So, she knew of that backyard entrance through the garage door and that's how she entered. And then she exited and went into her BMW trying to wear gloves and leave as little physical evidence as possible as she was leaving the scene. And then there was the question of the gun. Of course, they didn't suspect for a single second that she would have used her officer gun. So, they thought, okay, 
she must have bought another gun, so this was premeditated, but let's take that aside. She must have bought a secondary gun that she would have used in the scene, and then later, even if the police was to look into her and question her, she would have said, oh, I lost it, I don't know where it is. And then one of them just says, or it was stolen. So they look into the reports and what do you know? 13 days before the supposed burglary, Stephanie Lazarus reported her 38 caliber gun as stolen. And by that point, it was probably at the bottom of some lake, river, really ocean at this point because it's been 23 years. It's always the story that reads better and it could have read equally well equally well a couple of days after the murder, but nope, 2009. So now they have to discard her, or rather, because it reads so well to prove that this was most definitely 200% her. Yeah. Stephanie at this point actually was married, as I told you, and also had adopted a daughter. And the two of them were on the trip to Costco when they stopped for a smoothie or like a drink. So these two were kind of like, you know, probably in her normal clothes, maybe, you know, somebody else and somebody else out to follow Stephanie as she just disposed this beverage that she was drinking while well, somebody collected it from the garbage and now it was their property and they tested the DNA on the straw of that beverage and can you guess the drum roll? Give me the drum roll, give it to me, give it to us. All the DNA was a match. As shit's about to hit the fan, the imaginary one, which I clearly don't have, because otherwise I'm going to be looking sweaty and shiny like this, let's talk a bit about Stephanie. Who was she? Why? What was she up to? Why? Again, why? Stephanie and John met when they were undergraduate students at the UCLA, University of California, when they shared the same dorm floor and occasionally kind of had an on and off relationship. You could call it friends with benefits, really, but Stephanie always saw it as something else. The two of them would eventually graduate and still continue to see each other on and off. And yet again, John just saw it as his ex-friend that used to be his lover, but Stephanie was there waiting for that ring. When I tell you, she was there waiting for him to just pop the question. And then, without any announcement, without John ever running it by her, well, John starts seeing a woman and immediately shows all of this love and affection that he never, ever shown Stephanie. She learns that he is engaged and she finally decides to fess up all of the feelings to him. And when she does, she, you know, sort of starts crying and she tells him how much, like, you know, he means to her and all of that. And they sleep together that night. Yeah, he was, he was in a relationship with Sherry. I don't like John. I do not. Sorry, John, if you're listening to this by any chance for some reason, please don't. I don't really 100% am on your side. No. Before the two of them get married, she can't handle it. She's seeding, she's making all of these unannounced visits, telling Sherry that she will be the one marrying him, that she's in love with him, that she will be picking up the pieces. And still, despite of this, despite of her proclamation of love, John decides to go ahead and marry Sherry. Again, without consulting her much, because he thought that she would just go away. And she doesn't. For about two to three months, we don't really know the details of Stephanie's life, except from the part where she bought that gun and then reported it stolen a few weeks before. So it's safe to say 
that she was planning this murder for at least a couple of months and then just waited for the day for John to leave his house before Sherry. And after the murder, did she join the cast of Crazy Axe Girlfriend? No, nah, she didn't go into that. She just continued working. She was striving. She was thriving, going through the ranks. This next line is according to only one source and the source is Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. But Wikipedia says that she started her own private investigation company at some point, and it was called Unique Investigations. Which, sure, if she was as good of a police officer as she was a criminal, she probably covered up a bunch of these cases, so they sure as hell were unique. In 1987, she went on to earn medals, including one gold medal at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. In 1993, she went on to become a detective. Three years after that, she married a fellow officer and adopted a daughter with him. And she went on to become an instructor at the police academy. So at this point, where we meet Stephanie right now, she has worked her way up from the patrol car, which is where she was in the 80s, to the art theft division. Within her group of colleagues, she had a reputation for being tough and also going strictly by the book. She never had a disciplinary hearing. She was somebody people looked up to because she worked at different units, such as drug abuse, resistance education, homicide, internal affairs, before ending up being in the art thefts department. And on top of that, she also started the department's child care program, initiated the child safety ID program, she was one of the people that, according to all of the articles and all of the colleagues that spoke up later, it was a privilege to know her, and she was inspirational to so many people that worked underneath her. And this is kind of where both Barba and Natal see a form of a hiccup, because she was so loved, and now here they are, they have to isolate her, they have to question her without her suspecting anything. And on top of that, once they spoke with their chief, the chief kind of ran them through different situations that this can end up in if she was to have a gun on her. So they had to isolate her, and they also had to have her not have a gun on her, just in case that she decides maybe suddenly once she's caught after 23 years to either hurt somebody else or to pull that gun and turn it on herself. They couldn't know what state of mind she will be in once she realizes that she's the suspect. Before they did just this, they went to actually speak with Nelson and Loretta. And I love that they did this. They basically went to the house and, like, the whole family was there. And neither Barbara nor Natal knew what to say, but Loretta just approached them and she just hugged them. They finally knew it was over. And Natal actually said, like, I know I don't have any right to do this, but I need to ask you for just a bit more patience because we need to go by the book here. Otherwise, she has people to back her up. She has all of these colleagues. She is a police officer. She has all of these people that have only seen one version of Stephanie. And if this was to go to trial, we need to have a rock-solid case. So they leave Nelson Loretta and they dive into this case. And they find a guy that worked within Stephanie's department that worked kind of like a few tables across from her. So they wouldn't have worked on like the same cases and stuff, but they would know each other. They would have passed each other in the corridor. She would have known on him and there would be enough confidence there for her to listen to when he actually said that they have a suspect to interrogate. 
Luckily for them, one thing worked into their favor, and that was that Stephanie's department, Robbery Homicide Division and the Art Theft Detail, was located on the floor directly above the Parker Center's Jail Division. And because this was the jail kind of area, well, the guns would not be allowed, so she would be scanned and would have to give her gun away, and then would proceed to interview this supposed suspect. So at 6.40 a.m. on June the 5th, 2009, Dan Jaramillo stopped by the desk where Stephanie was sitting. He was wearing a wire. Stephanie, he asked, do you know me? I'm Dan Jaramillo. I work over here on the other side. He just went on to then explain that he was working on this case and he had a suspect in the jail downstairs who was talking about stolen art. I don't know a lot about this stuff, he said. You can kind of talk to him. So playing to Stephanie's ego here, making her feel important, he gets her to do just that. To go downstairs, and once the gun is in the tray, she enters this interrogation room and sits down. And it's pretty obvious that she realizes that she is the one that is getting questioned within a couple of minutes. But here I really need your opinion. And if you want to watch it in its entirety, it's on YouTube. It's over an hour, though. What I would suggest you watch is Observe's channel's cover of it. So, this guy named Logan, he's body language analyst. He did really good analysis on the most important parts on his channel. And during the interview, they keep repeating, you know, you know, you have the right to remain silent, you can always leave, and she never does. And she's a freaking police officer. So that's the one thing where I just find it so strange. Like, if you were a police officer, like, two minutes in, you realize that the tables have flipped, that you're the one that they're interrogating, isn't the first thing you're saying, like, sorry, I'm, I don't have anything to do with this, but... I also want an attorney present. Like, I'm not talking to you. Why the fuck are you investigating me? Why are you interrogating me? She literally sits there for the entirety of it. And I just can't really understand why. Has she given up finally? Did she finally know that she got caught? And if so, again, why just proceed with lying? Because you know also that you're being video recorded because you're a police officer. You have done these yourself. Because in my head, there are two valid reasons. One, she was done and she just wanted to get it over with and she knew she was going to jail. Or two, she was cocky. She thought, you didn't catch me for 23 years, you think you're gonna get me now. You got to let me know which one are you leaning towards. But basically, they sit her down, there's a camera that is sort of staring at her, and they tell her that they have been assigned a case and that her name has been mentioned in some of the notes. So they ask her, do you know John Rutten? And the detective mispronounces John's name on purpose in order to see if she corrects it. A case. Do you know John Rutten? John Rutten? Run. Run. Oh, yeah, I went to school with them. But Stephanie Lazarus, herself a decorated police officer, is now on the hot seat. Was there any relationship or anything that developed between you guys? Yeah, I mean, we dated. Uh huh. You know, um, I mean, it's, what's this all about? What it's all about is a cold case dating back nearly 25 years the murder of John Rutten's wife. Do you remember the first name? Sherry, I know something. She does the exact same fake recollection, according to Logan, the body language analyst, when she's asked questions about his wife. 
based on her body movements, based on the time that she takes to answer these questions, he said it's definitely obvious that she is faking not remembering all of these details. Had you ever met his wife? I may have. Do you know, do you remember her name or anything or? Um, um, or what she did for a living or where she worked or anything um, about her? Well, I think she, I, I'm going to say that I think she was a nurse. Sherry Ray Rasmussen was a nurse at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. On February 24th, 1986, she called in sick, never to be heard from again. I don't understand why you're talking about some guy I dated a million years ago. Well, do you know what happened to his wife? Yeah, I know she got killed. You think about uh, a crime that occurred in 1986 and now in 2010 you're being confronted, uh, you know, completely out of left field. Criminologist Brad Garrett says the videotaped interview suggests Lazarus has something to hide. Do you know what the circumstances were regarding her death? Mm. Jeez, oh, let me think back. Um, jeez. Her anxiety is just off the charts. Oh, I, don't, I, mean, I don't think I did. Her respiration has increased. She has, at times, sort of rapid eye movement. Uh, she has a little bit of a nervous giggle. I mean, are you guys, is this something... I mean, you said that I was going to interview somebody about art. She clearly is feeling like... The world has just fallen upon her. Some of Sherry's friends said that you and her were having a problem <laughs> because of the John situation. This fake recollection is then contradicted by her sudden outburst of saying, yeah, I knew that she was killed, just outright. And then them asking, oh, how did you know about that? And she said that she saw a poster at work about it. Every time during this interrogation, when she would feel trapped, she would change the story and sort of start remembering or rather fake remembering again. She would say that he must have told her where she worked. What year was it again? What year did they get married? Where was she at that point so that she can connect the dots here? <laughs> well, after first denying ever speaking with Sherry Ray Rasmussen, Lazarus starts to backpedal, admitting she may have confronted her at the Glendale Hospital. Oh, yeah, no, there was not. I don't think there was anything. It was if the conversation lasted. A, a, a few minutes, I can't even remember. It wasn't like, you know, we went out to lunch or anything. The subject matter would have been memorable. The man they had in common. From what you're telling me is when you guys met at the hospital, uh, I mean, you guys talked, but it wasn't, from what you recall, confrontational from either side? I, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, turn my memory back, you know, uh, and I'm trying, I can't even, I can't even picture the, you know, picture the, the conversation. I think it's chilling. This is the interview that should have been done back in 1986 by the LAPD. Did you ever fight with her? You mean like we fought? Yeah. Did you ever yeah. keep it out with her? No, I don't think so. I mean... You'd remember that, right? That would be pretty... Yeah, I would think so. I mean, at this point, you don't have to be a veteran detective, like Lazarus is, to get the drift. They're saying, okay, I fought with her, so I must have killed her. I mean, come on. Finally, after more than an hour of all this, the detectives get down to brass tacks. You know, if we asked you for uh, a DNA swap, would you be willing to give us one? Maybe. 
because now, 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 now I'm thinking I probably need to talk to a lawyer. What Lazarus doesn't yet know is that the cops already had her DNA, and it's a match with that bite mark from the crime scene. I'm shocked. I'm really shocked that somebody would be blamed saying that I did this. I mean, we had a fight, and so I went and killed her. I mean, come on. Lazarus gets up and walks out of the room. In the hallway, the sound is still rolling as her fellow police officers place her under arrest. Lazarus comes back to the interview room in handcuffs. Her answers now are crisp and cold. Stephanie, you know you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Yes. Anything you say may be used against you in court. Do you understand? Yes. As soon as she leaves that interrogation room, she gets arrested on the spot. And this is when they start building a case against her. And for that case, they found something in her possession, well, rather, in her home, that was particularly interesting for both the prosecution and the defense. And those were her daily planners. And these daily planners matched the detective's story and completely contradicted everything that she has said and fake recalled, apparently, in this room. And also just the sheer fact that she still kept them tells me something else. It's a bit pathetic, Stefania. A, bit, a tiny bit pathetic, but sure, let's proceed, because she's a pathetic person in general, as a whole. An entry from this journal from November 1984 discussed that during the night out, she managed to keep her mind off John for a while. Then there was an entry from April 1985 that stated that she saw his car, she put a note on it, and she watched it for one half an hour and checked up on it a few times. An entry from May 1985 mentioned that she visited John and that his girlfriend was there. Then in June that same year, she noted down that she finally found out that John was getting married and she described herself as very depressed and her concentration as negative 10. Another entry from that same month when she found out that John was getting married, said that she didn't feel like working, she was too stressed out about John and found it really hard concentrating these days. But interestingly, the journal didn't have any entry in March 1986, and also there was no mention about her gun being bought or stolen, for that matter. Also, apart from this journal, her home computers were analyzed by this computer expert, and they found that she performed searches of John Rutten's name in April 1998, May 1999, and December 1999 which uh, sounds to me like somebody was a bit hung up, a bit hung up there. 1999, girl, that's still 13 years later. I bet you were married then and all of that. Still keeping all these journals and shit. Just, uh, Stefania. Here's a grape. Here's a grape, okay? It's a grape. Just get it. Get it. Just, just get it for the love of God, no? She's not, she's not getting it, is she? She's, uh, she's not getting it. In 2012, the case finally goes to trial. And the prosecution runs the jury through the story that I told you at the beginning of John leaving the house at 7.20, giving her a couple of missed calls, but not realizing that anything suspicious happened, of the estimated time of death, and finally how he found his wife lying on the floor. The forensic firearms expert testified that based on the location of the bullet holes, the weapon had to be a revolver with a two-inch barrel. Now, what this meant was that a lot of guns were capable of firing the bullets that were found on the crime scene, but less than a dozen of those kind of weapons would have two-inch barrels. 
A criminalist named Lloyd Mahoney took samples from the bite mark on her arm on the scene, and the additional items and samples that were collected from the BMW, including multiple fingerprints and multiple samples of what appeared to be blood and that strand of brown hair, were also collected and then later tested positive to Stephanie's DNA. The prosecutors also got that maid to testify. If you remember the maid that was working next door and heard a single scream, well, she testified that what she heard was kind of like a thud, but it sounded like it was two people fighting. It didn't sound like two people were fighting and there was another person that was at the same time making all of that havoc, like breaking things around. It literally sounded like a fight of two people. And she didn't report to the police. Ignore that part. The defense attorney, this dude called Mark Overland, well, he questioned the validity of that DNA evidence. Because if you remember, it was in a freezer for about 18 plus years. So, was it really valid? Was it exposed to different things? But then, again, why would it be Stephanie's? Like, why would she have just random pieces of DNA in a random freezer? Like, surely you wouldn't just leave your DNA and put it in the freezer as a police officer. Like, think it through. Think it through. He would also note that there was this blood smear that was from an unidentified male. And they analyzed it for DNA and it didn't match either the blood of Lazarus or Asmussen. It was a male DNA. So, that suggested the possibility of another suspect. Going back to that Latino man burglary theory. They also had a forensic firearms examiner called Patricia Fant, and she would testify that the bullets that were found on the scene could not be identified as having been made by the particular manufacturer or as being from the 38 caliber gun that Stephanie apparently used. And of course, in order to prove her character, they had to have some witness testimonies to show that she isn't this jealous lover, that she isn't this, like, psychopath, that she wouldn't have done this and then just continue to live her life as normal and thrive for 23 years. They invited her friend as a character witness, and she said that she has never witnessed Stephanie be violent towards anybody. Then they found this guy who worked with her in 1985 and 86. And again, he has testified that he has never considered her to be a violent person. They interrogated a person that has seen her the next day after Sherry's murder. And they have said they have not seen any injuries, any change in mood, anything that would indicate that something like this happened on her day off. All of the witnesses, like her college friends, people that have worked with her, all of them kind of repeated the same story. And I don't think that was particularly smart. Like, because all of them focused to say, like, she wasn't violent. Compared to the physical evidence, that's just weak and also kind of boring. As a member of the jury, you're just hearing every single person, she isn't violent, she isn't violent. Okay. And anybody can just snap when they're too pissed off. Like, Anything physical that can prove that she wasn't there on the scene of the crime? No. Okay. So, the jury here felt the same, and the DNA evidence proved to be too hard to overcome. So, after deliberating a little more than a day, the jury of eight women and four men found her guilty. She got 25 years to life, and then extra two years on top of that for the weapons enhancement. Stephanie would, of course, go on to appeal the conviction, and she would say that the search warrant for which they got her journal was improperly granted. She would also appeal by stating that the original Virgo theory evidence was not presented during the trial. 
But her appeal was denied in 2015 and she is currently serving her 27 years to life sentence and is eligible for parole in 2034. In 2010, Nelson Loretta filed a civil lawsuit against the city. They alleged the discover-up, including the act of allowing Stephanie to periodically review the case file, the LAPD hostility towards them that just continued through the 1990s and started on the night of the murder, amounted to a violation of their civil rights, emotional distress, and fraudulent concealment. Really, the city was found to be immune from the liability, and their response was basically to introduce statute of limitations, which hasn't been done before, saying that the Rasmussen's time to sue them was limited once they broke off contact with the LAPD in 1998, and that the last year that they could actually sue them was the year 2000. They broke off the contact because you weren't doing shit for, like, how many years? I'm so I'm so incensed with this case. This is like, this is taking too much. Okay, and now, Jennifer Francis, the bad bitch, the one that I call bad bitch. Well, she was in shit because she was technically being seen as a snitch because she did the right thing. She did the fucking right thing and wasn't corrupt. She was working on another serial killer case, the famous Grim Sleeper one, and she has been taken off of it. Her supervisor threatened that she was obsessed and emotional and shouldn't have said anything, so they transferred her to a non-analytical position. They basically demoted her because she got the right person arrested. At some point, she also spoke up against one of her supervisors and accused him of sexually harassing other female criminalists, and then she was transferred from that department. So she brought the city to trial for the violation of state labor law, but the judge has found that there were no triable issues of fact of her claims of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. And in 2019, they sided with the city. So, yet again, none of these families, nor Francis, nor Asmussen, who have worked so hard on this case, got, like, any compensation, any praise for it, rather... One person was demoted and has her career ruined for doing the right thing and getting the right person behind bars. And the family that waited for 23 years trying to cooperate with the police and bug the police, again, couldn't win. Couldn't win against the system. And what's crazy to me in this case, among like 100 things, was that had Stephanie Lazarus not been crazed enough to actually bite her, to actually bite Sherry, had Sherry not put her in that chokehold, this would have still probably been a cold case. Because they wouldn't have just tested things from the BMW, they wouldn't have just tested things from the file. This probably would still have been an unsolved case. While being one of the most solvable cases that you and me have probably ever heard of. And now might be the right moment, as we are saying goodbye to one another, for me to tell you that there was actually a third reason why I haven't covered this case myself. And that is that I like to believe that if a person is guilty of a crime and they get away with it, that they're living shitty life, you know? That they're living the Mark Putnam life from two weeks ago, where it's eating them alive, where they're losing weight, they're constantly shitting on the toilet, they're having mad diarrhea, and they're just, oh, as a whole, miserable as a person. And this one just slaps me right in the face, because clearly she wasn't miserable. Clearly, Stephanie could live with herself. She could sleep at night, while at the same time, in the same breath, being the 
the police officer. So that was a nice slap in the face that totally didn't prove me wrong on every single turn. Every single turn I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you not solving this? This is so easy to solve. Okay, cool. But you know, it's it's good to know that the LAPD is totally not corrupt right now, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing great work, right? This happened. When was this trial? In 2012. Do you think they're doing great work now? Why are you lying to them? Why do you want them to live in a delusion like you do, that people can't live with themselves when they commit crimes, Maya? When time and time again, serial killers, they prove you wrong. Literally every single case proves you wrong and you're all there like this is a slap in my face. Okay, I need to get out to this video right now. That is all that I have for you today. I need a cold shower and possibly a beverage as I edit this one out because I'm gonna be pissed off as I'm editing it as well. I'm gonna be passionate. A bit passionate about you, Stefania. Stefania. We gotta talk. No, we actually don't. I really... It's one of the people that I would never interview. Even if I had a chance, Stefania, Crazy eyes, I can't handle it. Crazy and crazy, I can't handle it. And you lie a lot. You know, at least I have all of the facial expressions, but I'm not a freaking psycho, so... No. Pass, hard pass. Bye. Asfania, and uh, on that note, bye everybody else. I hope you're having shitty time in prison. That's one thing that I looked up and I couldn't find. I really want to find it. I really want to find it. If anybody finds an article of Stefania here, of the Lazaruses, having shitty time in prison, send it my way. Right here, right here. I want to know. I want to know. Because <laughs> she's a cop. Come on. She, she is not having the best time in prison. Will that compensate for the fact that she hasn't been caught? No, nothing will. Nothing ever will. Why? Where is this going? No way. Okay, cool. I'm glad that we sorted that out right here in front of everybody else. <sighs> Who are you talking to? Am I going crazy, everybody? I think I am. I think I am. It's literally nobody. It's every time I feel like I'm going more and more insane because I look there and I see nobody, but I still keep interacting with them as if it is the audience. All right. Okay. <laughs> Slightly insane. Touch of a reminder of a seven-year-old Maya, like, teaching ABCs to the empty room, you know. <laughs> That's not going into your favor right now. So, that was totally not awkward. Um, now, I will see you guys, actually, for another video this week, hopefully. <laughs> if I get to edit them all out, because they're not short, are they? They're just not short. But now, goodbye. And... <laughs> But for now, bye guys. Bye. Oh, bye, manic energy, manic energy. What is that? What is that? When you think about the definition of stability, the first name that comes to mind, Stefania, motherfucking Lazarus, of the Lazaruses. She was a doggy door away from becoming Jody Arias. But how, how do we let these people become police officers? She, she would have gone through a fucking doggy door. I'm telling you, this is level of insanity. Just imagine, like, as a Sherry, like, if, if she had a dog and her dog hit the door, just imagine, like, instead of finding her in a kitchen, in full police uniform, with a gun in the holster, for a doggy door. Like, it's a fucking diving experience. <sighs> would not put it past her, would not, nope, would not. So, as you can see, we have a bit of a situation going on here. Um, let me just quickly explain. It's about 50 degrees today in the UK. What the actual fuck is going on on the streets? 
good. Ah, today is going so well. I totally thought everybody is still here, right? No, this is like 10-minute intro. I thought everybody is still here. Mm -hmm. I totally have not given up on life, not you. It's like showing how it's not done, yeah? This is how you don't do it. No, we don't do something Look at that. How does that look like? You know how the police is always supposed to suspect the husband, the boyfriend first? They just completely neglected us in this case. They're like, he was at work, he didn't arrange anything. Lady Cut, no, he never mentioned her. Like, and if this guy truly never thought in his mind that this woman is that crazy, like, I have so many opinions that I cannot connect in this 550 degrees heat. This was a wrong day to record, but then I think also tomorrow is gonna be 50 degrees. <laughs> I kind of can't have that as an excuse not to record. You get me? You get me? Cool. We get each other. And now have another splash of water into my face and continue. <laughs> Folks. 